Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's that time of year, March Madness. Whether your team's on the bubble or in the big dance, rooting for Houston or Purdue, Big East or Big 12, BetOnline Sportsbook has you covered with all the props, odds, promos, and parlays for this year's March Madness. Use our promo code BLEAVE50, that's B-L-E-A-V-5-0, to get a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description to this episode. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good afternoon or good night. However, and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live. On the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is a fan-flippin'-tabulous day. I hope you all are doing wonderful here on the show. As we've mentioned a couple of times over the past few weeks, we wrote a book. We published a book. We have sold Over 60 copies of our book within a week of having it publish. Our book, The Spurs Dynasty, a historical account of the most successful dynasty in the history of North American pro sports, is available now. There's a link in the description to this episode for all of the information around the book, where you can order an ebook, where you can order a physical copy, how you can get 25% off of the book, where you can listen to not just an audiobook version of this book, but also listen to our five-part documentary podcast series that we made last summer that inspired the creation of this book. A couple weeks ago on this podcast feed, you heard the introduction and chapter one of the book recorded as an audiobook. And if you've been subscribing to our Fall of the Spurs Dynasty podcast feed, you have been listening to chapters two and three, which have been released week by week as I have gone through recording an audiobook that for the people who have supported our dreams the most, people who listen to this podcast feed, subscribe and download every day, which if you listen to every episode of this show, I would love to meet you. I know that there's menu item stuff on this show, and those of you who follow, download, and support are the ones who are really supporting these dreams the most. And so for all of you and for those listening on the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty podcast feed, I wanted to create a free audiobook experience for all of you. And this audiobook is now into chapter three. And so we've got like an hour's worth of book today to share with you on the podcast. If you want the most up-to-date week-to-week versions of the audiobook, it's available 
on our Fall of the Spurs Dynasty podcast feed, which is also available with all the links in the description to this episode. If you want to listen episode by episode, if you want to listen to a specific chapter of the book, anything you want around this project, the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty podcast feed is the place to go. So I'm going to set up the book itself in the audio clips that we recorded for the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty. So from this point forward, I'm going to turn it over to myself, who put together chapters two and chapters three of our audiobook. And for all of you who are so gracious enough to turn in, we appreciate you and all of your support. And if you want to purchase the full book, it is available on the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty feed. And by the way, we're doing chapters two and three today. So if you haven't heard the introduction, if you haven't heard chapter one of the book, you can check those out on the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty podcast feed. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. My name is Kyle Ledbetter. I am the host and producer of The Fall of the Spurs Dynasty and the author of a brand new book titled The Spurs Dynasty, a historical account of the most successful dynasty in North American pro sports. The documentary series on this podcast feed we created last year became a book that was published last week. It is available everywhere you get books. There are multiple links in the description to this episode if you want to purchase the book. And for those of you loyal listeners, those of you who have subscribed to this podcast feed for many months, those of you who reached out to us and partook in the Fall of the Spurs Dynasty series, engaged with us, left those five-star reviews, those follows, those downloads, and all of your support, we wanted to reward those of you who have supported our dreams with an audiobook version of our new book, The Spurs Dynasty, and offer it to you for free. The only thing we ask is that you support our dreams and potentially buy the book. We are on chapter two today, and week by week, we're going to work through this book over the coming months. And this week, we are going to start up the book with chapter two, which is titled Fundamental. I bet you can guess where this story goes next, considering when we left off, we had been through the George Gervin and David Robinson years, went through the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, all the way through 1997. And today's chapter, Fundamental, will be about one particular player who is fundamental to the Spurs Dynasty story. So without further ado, here is chapter two of the Spurs Dynasty. Chapter 2. Fundamental. In January 1917, the United States of America agreed to purchase a group of islands in the Caribbean from the country of Denmark in exchange for $25 million. The United States felt this acquisition could provide a strategic advantage in their fight against the German Navy in World War I. On March 31st, the United States government took control of the territories and officially established the region as the Virgin Islands of the United States. Under 180 years of Danish control, the region now known as the U.S. Virgin Islands served primarily as a sugarcane plantation for the Danish West India Company. 
Slave rebellions and the pursuit of emancipation across two centuries came to define the islands of the Caribbean. When hurricanes wiped out the plantations, the Danish government had to send in resources to keep the island viable. Poverty amongst the formerly enslaved peoples followed a region that the Western world left behind once they couldn't make a profit off their forced labor. The transfer of power to the United States marked a new period in the history of the region. The Virgin Islands established government across the three main islands in the 1920s. Franklin Roosevelt's Depression-era policies invested money into the islands in the 1930s. Tourism and oil economies moved into the region in the 1950s. The former slave colony began drafting its own constitution in the 1970s. And on April 25, 1976, Tim Duncan was born on the island of St. Croix. St. Croix is the largest of the three major islands in the U.S. Virgin Islands, along with the islands St. John and St. Thomas. When Duncan was born, the population of St. Croix was approximately 40,000 people, most of whom are the descendants of formerly enslaved Africans. The entire island of St. Croix is 84 square miles, approximately 7% the size of San Antonio's Bear County. Tim Duncan was the fourth and youngest child of William and Deliza Ion Duncan. Duncan's parents migrated from Anguilla, an island east of St. Croix under British rule. His father worked as a mason, while his mother worked as a midwife at St. Croix's Juan F. Luis Hospital and Medical Center. Tim Duncan's two older sisters, Cheryl and Tricia, were both elite-level swimmers which was the sport Tim trained in and excelled at as a child. In 1988, Trisha qualified for the U.S. Virgin Island Olympic team and would swim in the qualifiers in South Korea. Because Tim was only 11 years old at the time, he was unable to qualify for the U.S. Virgin Island team and joined his sister in Seoul, despite the fact he was the best swimmer on the team in the, five, in the 50 meter, 100 meter, and 400-meter freestyle competitions. In September 1989, Category 5 storm Hurricane Hugo made landfall over the U.S. Virgin Islands and the Caribbean. The storm was the largest recorded on the island since the 1860s hurricane that wiped out plantation crops. Three people on the island died in the storm, and 90% of buildings on St. Croix, St. Thomas, and St. John, sustained some form of damage. Estimates indicated that approximately $500 million of damages were accrued on the islands. Tim Duncan had to give up his first love of swimming after the hurricane. The only Olympic-sized pool had been destroyed in the storm, and a fear of sharks prevented him from training in the ocean. Additionally, as the island recovered from the damages of the storm, Duncan and his family received the devastating news that Delisa Ion Duncan was suffering from a terminal form of breast cancer. The combination of his mother's failing health, the hurricane, and the loss of his passion for swimming left Tim feeling his life had lost its purpose. Tim became depressed and saddened 
as he and his family grieved for the impending loss of their mother and wife. Delisa Ion Duncan died on April 24, 1990, one day before Tim's 14th birthday. Trisha, Scott, and Tim, the three youngest children, all made promises to their mother that they would all go on to graduate from college prior to her death. Tim carried that promise with him years later, once his basketball career began to flourish. Ricky Lowry married Tim's sister Cheryl, and together they had a son in St. Croix in 1985. Following Delisa Ion's death in 1990, Ricky sensed that Tim needed athletic competition as a way to help him grieve, relieve his pain, and find a new purpose. When Tim was 14, Ricky introduced him to basketball for the first time. Tim didn't really know how to play the sport, but playing basketball became his way to play with other kids and find a new passion to pursue. Cuthbert George, Duncan's high school basketball coach, described watching a 15-year-old Tim Duncan play for the first time to NBC's Hannah Storm in 1999. Quote, I saw Tim play on the basketball court, but Tim didn't have any skills at all. As time goes on, I realize that Tim liked playing basketball more for the love of the game. End quote. Despite only playing the sport for two years and never having formal basketball training, Tim Duncan's lean body and 7-foot 4-inch frame made him an intriguing basketball prospect. He was the best player on his high school team and got some attention from smaller colleges. When Tim got a scholarship offer from the University of Hartford in Connecticut, he knew for certain basketball was his way to get a college degree. In 1992, a group of college basketball seniors got together and traveled to the U.S. Virgin Islands for a goodwill trip focused on addressing the rise in violence on the island. Part of the charity event was having those players play full-court basketball against some of the island's best players in front of a thousand or so people. One of the players on that trip was named Chris King, who had recently been selected with the 45th pick in the 1992 NBA draft. Another player along for the trip was future NBA Hall of Fame center Alonzo Mourning, who was picked second overall in the 1992 draft. King described in 2016 how the event was structured and what happened when 16-year-old Tim Duncan arrived to play. Quote, They had a lot of talent on the island, so they put together their local teams. A lot of them were raw, but we just did it to stay in shape and just to have fun on the island. We were getting ready to play that night, just a fun exhibition game. I mean, it was crowded. And here comes this kid. I thought he was about six foot eight, six foot nine, long, skinny kid. And then everyone's like, oh, that's Tim Duncan. He's a swimmer. I think around the third quarter, he's just starting to really get warmed up. And you know, Alonzo Mourning was like the big name on the team, and they're playing the, both the same position. I remember Alonzo comes across the middle with his little patented skyhook, and Tim blocks it, runs the floor, 
and Alonzo's trying to trail him to see if he can get the block from behind. And this 16-year-old kid just bangs all on top of him. And everybody starts jumping up and screaming. And man, I mean, it's like the whole game just came to a pause. And then I just remember everybody surrounded Tim after the game, and not Alonzo. End quote. Chris King played in college at Wake Forest, a Division I basketball program in the powerhouse ACC, or Atlantic Coast Conference. At the time, Wake Forest hadn't won an ACC championship since 1962. King told his former head coach Barry Odom about this incredible player from the Virgin Islands, and Wake Forest got involved in recruiting Duncan, which led to more teams offering Duncan scholarships. As a senior in high school, Duncan averaged 25 points per game, received a scholarship offer from Wake Forest, and committed to play for the school as part of their 1994 recruiting class. Odom, who ended up coaching Duncan for four years at Wake Forest, detailed to NBC in 1999 why Tim Duncan was such an intriguing prospect. Quote, You could look at Tim and say, here's a man where if given time, proper coaching, he's an anxious, willing worker, he's got a chance to be very special. Over time, Odom also grew to learn not to typecast Duncan's introverted, quiet demeanor. Duncan didn't match the stereotypes of a quote-unquote professional athlete because he was someone who preferred to keep to himself. He was someone at Wake Forest who went to psychology class and blended in, absorbing information quietly. He would be friendly and jovial with the people he knew and would shy away from people he didn't know. He didn't talk trash on the floor because he barely talked at all. And, as his future NBA teammate Bruce Bowen would describe to Anscape's Mike Wise, Duncan had a very team-oriented demeanor. Quote, He's funny, interesting, opinionated, but he wasn't going to put on a show if he didn't know you. If there is anything that anyone of his stature could learn about his success, though, it's how to keep your world private. After the cameras and nonstop access, he understood how important it was to have something for yourself at the end. You talk about a guy that made it about team as compared to self, that's what TD did. It was always about team for him. Even in a day and age of promoting the individual, he didn't allow anything about himself to take away from the good of the group. End quote. After playing 65 games of top-level college basketball, Duncan's game developed in ways no coach, scout, or even Odom could have anticipated. In 1995, Duncan's sophomore season at Wake Forest, he averaged 16.8 points, 12.5 rebounds, and an NCAA leading 4.2 blocks per game. Duncan was named 1995 Defensive Player of the Year, made the first team All-ACC, led Wake Forest to a 12-4 ACC record, and secured the school's first regular season ACC championship since 1962. In the ACC tournament championship game, Duncan's teammate Randolph Childress, who would go on to be drafted in the first round of the 1995 NBA draft, scored 38 points and secured an upset victory 
against Dean Smith and number four ranked North Carolina. While Childress was a star for Wake Forest in 1995, it was Duncan who possessed the better prospects for an NBA future. Los Angeles Lakers general manager Jerry West, famous for assembling the Showtime Lakers of the 1980s, declared that he believed Duncan could be the number one pick in the 1995 draft. Duncan returned to Wake Forest in 1996 without Childress, and the team finished with a second consecutive 12-4 ACC record. Duncan won a second consecutive Defensive Player of the Year award, was named ACC Conference Player of the Year, and finished second place for the National Player of the Year award. For the second straight season, Wake Forest won the ACC Tournament Championship, becoming the first school to win back-to-back tournaments since Michael Jordan's freshman season at North Carolina in 1981. With the opportunity to advance to the Final Four, college basketball's national championship round, Duncan came down with a case of the flu and was not allowed to participate in the team's Elite Eight matchup, which Wake Forest would lose. If there was a chance Tim Duncan would have been the number one pick in the 1995 NBA draft, it was a certainty that Duncan would be picked number one in 1996. The Philadelphia 76ers won the draft lottery and got the number one pick, looking at the possibility of selecting either Duncan or Georgetown star Allen Iverson. Then, the shocking news came in that Tim Duncan was returning to Wake Forest for his senior season before declaring for the 1997 NBA draft. In the 10 years since David Robinson was selected, NBA teams had moved towards drafting younger and younger players, opting to begin development with their own coaches rather than in college. Most NBA teams drafted exclusively freshmen and sophomores with their top draft picks, sometimes even opting to select 17- and 18-year-old high school players. In the 1996 NBA draft, future NBA stars Kobe Bryant and Jermaine O'Neal were both selected directly from high school. Future All-Stars like Iverson, Stephon Marbury, and Ray Allen were all picked in the top five, and all of them were presently younger than Tim Duncan. Here's how Duncan detailed his decision to return to Wake Forest to NBC in 1999, and the influence the promise he made to his mom had on that. Quote, My dad promised her that he'd see us through school, and see we all graduated from college, and that was a big part of why I stayed in school. End quote. According to Coach Barry Odom, Duncan was also quoted by a Wake Forest basketball reporter in 1996 saying, quote, Why should I try to do today what I'll be better prepared to do at some time in the future? End quote. Duncan returned to Wake Forest and won his third Defensive Player of the Year, second consecutive ACC Player of the Year, and unanimously won the 1997 National Player of the Year Award receiving every single first-place vote. Duncan averaged 20.8 points a game and led the country with 14.8 rebounds. 
If Tim Duncan had been any other player, he would not have been able to turn down the NBA for three years and still be projected to be the number one pick. He was regarded as the best basketball prospect anyone had seen in a generation. Some said he was the best prospect since Shaquille O'Neal in 1992. Some said he was the best prospect since David Robinson in 1987. It was fitting that Duncan was receiving comparisons to Robinson, because their journeys followed some of the same parallels. Robinson didn't play basketball until he was 17 years old, and Duncan didn't play until he was 14. Robinson attended the Naval Academy, and Duncan attended Wake Forest, both of which were far cries from the quote-unquote blue-blood top-level basketball programs. Robinson could have been the number one pick in the NBA draft in 1986, 1987, and 1990 after his service. Tim Duncan could have been the number one pick in the 1995, 1996, and 1997 NBA drafts. Both Robinson and Duncan had one-of-a-kind paths to becoming basketball prodigies. From Virginia, four years at the Naval Academy, being a lieutenant in Georgia, all the way to the NBA. From a small island in the Caribbean, dreams of Olympic swimming trials, then to North Carolina before a long-anticipated NBA arrival. These two once-in-a-lifetime players had both made it to the NBA, and their paths were about to intersect for the first time. The 1997 NBA Draft Lottery had a different format this year, where the top three picks were the only ones that would, the lottery would decide. Each team had a predetermined percentage chance of getting the first pick, second pick, or third pick, and then the remaining picks would be slotted in reverse order, based on record. The worst team in the NBA in 1997 was the Vancouver Grizzlies, one of the NBA's two newest expansion teams in 1995. According to the terms of their expansion contract, the Grizzlies and Toronto Raptors were not allowed to get the number one pick in any draft for their first three years of their existence. This meant that every other team got a much better chance of landing the number one pick, a once-in-a-lifetime good break for the teams who hoped of landing Tim Duncan. The draft lottery results came in, and similar to 1987, Team logos were revealed from giant envelopes on stage. 13th, Cleveland. 12th, Indiana. 11th, 10th, 9th, 8th. 7th, New Jersey. 6th, Boston. 5th, Denver. 4th, Vancouver. Then, the final three teams. Third, Boston, again. Second, Philadelphia. First, San Antonio. The probability of the San Antonio Spurs winning both the 1987 and 1997 draft lotteries was equal to 3.087%. 
This was something unprecedented. This was a glitch in the system. San Antonio didn't need Tim Duncan. They had David Robinson. They were in the Western Conference Finals two years ago. Teams aren't supposed to get those two players at the same time. San Antonio did. Tim Duncan's 1998 rookie season lived up to the unfathomable expectations. Duncan started in all 82 games for the Spurs and averaged 21.1 points with 12 rebounds, compared to Robinson's 21.6 points and 11 rebounds. Duncan was named the NBA's best power forward, while Robinson made his 8th career All-NBA team. Tim Duncan placed 5th for the 1998 NBA MVP, while Robinson finished right behind in 7th. The Spurs improved by 36 wins from 1997 to 1998, which broke the NBA record they set in Robinson's 1990 rookie season. In Duncan's first playoff appearance, the Spurs lost in five games against 1997 NBA MVP Carl Malone and the eventual Western Conference champion Utah Jazz. Following a labor stoppage to begin the 1999 NBA season, the Spurs started with a slow 6-8 record. Sensing the team may have regressed from the 1998 season, Spurs management was considering making a change to save the season. Doc Rivers, the former Spurs player, was regarded as one of the most popular candidates for a head coaching job. Rivers was working at the time as a commentator on Spurs broadcasts, and the organization didn't want to see the well-liked Rivers leave San Antonio. Amidst the poor start to the 1999 season, management proposed the idea of firing Greg Popovich and hiring Rivers as the team's new coach. The possibility of Popovich's firing famously led to Robinson and Avery Johnson, both ardent Coach Pop supporters, giving impassioned messages to the team which would serve as a turning point for the season and quite possibly the dynasty. With Popovich's job on the line, the Spurs won nine consecutive games and went on to finish the shortened season with a stretch of 31 wins and five losses. Popovich would remain as Spurs head coach and Doc Rivers would be hired as head coach of the Orlando Magic following the 1999 season. The 31-5 stretch would secure Coach Pop, Duncan, Robinson, and the Spurs, the number one seed in the Western Conference, for the first time since Robinson's 1995 MVP season. In addition to Johnson and Sean Elliott, both key pieces of the 1995 Spurs team, Popovich had acquired three-point specialist Steve Kerr, who won the last three championships with the Chicago Bulls in 1996, 1997, and 1998. Popovich also brought in Will Perdue from the Bulls and Mario Eli from the 1995 Houston Rockets, who defeated the Spurs in the Western Conference Finals. In the 1999 playoffs, the San Antonio Spurs defeated the Minnesota Timberwolves in the first round, then advanced with a 4 wins to 0 sweep against Shaquille O'Neal, Kobe Bryant, 
and the Los Angeles Lakers in the second round. In Game 2, Tim Duncan made a game-winning shot with 8 seconds to play, sending the 33,000 San Antonio fans into a roaring cheer. In Game 3, played in Los Angeles, Tim Duncan scored a career-record 37 points, and in the elimination Game 4, added 33 points and 14 rebounds. In the Western Conference Finals, San Antonio matched up as favorites against the Portland Trailblazers. A 17-point comeback, combined with Sean Elliott making a game-winning shot in Game 2, gave San Antonio a 2 games to 0 lead in the series. The Spurs won the next two games in Portland by 22 and 14 points, winning their first conference championship after 25 years of San Antonio Spurs basketball. In the 1999 NBA Finals, the San Antonio Spurs matched up against the New York Knicks, the number eight seed in the Eastern Conference, who had pulled off one of the great upsets in NBA history to advance to the Finals. In their first NBA Finals game, Tim Duncan scored 33 points, rebounded 16 basketballs, and the Spurs won by holding the Knicks to just 77 points. Game 2 followed the same pattern, 25 Duncan points, 15 Duncan rebounds, and just 67 Knicks points. After New York won Game 3 at home, Game 4 followed the same plan, 28 points and 18 rebounds from Duncan, holding the Knicks to just 89 points. The Spurs now led the series three wins to one, one victory away from the team's first ever NBA championship. In Game 5, San Antonio trailed New York 72-75 with four minutes left to play. Mario Eli made a three-point basket to tie the score at 75 before a foul on Tim Duncan led to two free throws from New York's Latrell Sprewell. Tim Duncan's one free throw would be the only points for the next two minutes, giving the Spurs prodigy 31 points in the game. With 47 seconds left to play, Sean Elliott passed to Avery Johnson for an 18-foot corner jump shot that goes in, leading to Johnson tumbling into the New York crowd as he runs down the floor. Spurs 78, Knicks 77. The Both the Knicks and Spurs missed shots, and New York got the ball with 2.1 seconds to play. New York calls a play for Sprewell, and the star guard catches the ball under the basket. With time running out, Sprewell turns and shoots a fadeaway shot over both Robinson and Duncan. The shot doesn't get off in time, and the big red horn signals the end of the game. Spurs 78, Knicks 77. The San Antonio Spurs are the 1999 NBA champions. 
Tim Duncan is named the 1999 NBA Finals Most Valuable Player. The prodigy delivered on a championship within two years of arriving in San Antonio. The child from St. Croix was now one of the best basketball players in the world. The first NBA Finals MVP in the post-Michael Jordan era. Tim Duncan's basketball nickname would come to be known as the Big Fundamental, a nickname given to him by his basketball adversary, Shaquille O'Neal. O'Neal went on to win the 2000 NBA MVP and 2000 Finals MVP. In his Lake and his Lakers faced off with Duncan's Spurs in 1999, 2001, 2002, and 2003 playoffs. In all four of those years, the winning team went on to win the NBA championship, while Duncan and O'Neal would also win three of the four NBA Most Valuable Player awards between 2000 and 2003. Their battles would come to define the five-year era of basketball post-Jordan. O'Neal talked to Anscape in 2016 about why he felt that nickname stuck for Duncan. Quote, I called him the Big Fundamental because his fundamental skills were perfect. I put him in the same category as Larry Bird. Larry Bird didn't run fast or jump high, but he'd eat you alive with his fundamentals. That's what Tim did. I was probably 80% talent, 20% fundamental. Tim Duncan was probably 80% fundamental and 20% talent. End quote. The word fundamental would be what came to define Tim Duncan's career. Fundamental is necessary when you learn basketball for the first time at 14. Fundamental is important when you grow up on an island of 40,000 people. Fundamental was how Tim Duncan got to the NBA from Wake Forest. Tim Duncan was a fundamental basketball player. He also was the fundamental piece of the Spurs dynasty. Without Tim Duncan, none of what comes next would have been possible. You can order the Spurs dynasty everywhere that you get books today. It's available as an ebook on Amazon. It's available on Kindle. It's available on Barnes and Noble. Everywhere you get books, it is available. And you can use the link in the description to this episode to get all of the information you need about purchasing the Spurs Dynasty. If you want 25% off the book, shoot me an email at takeiteasypod with two Ds at gmail.com. That is also linked in the description to this episode. Again, we'll get you 25% off your book order when you come directly to us. So thank you everybody for stopping in. I hope you've been enjoying this audiobook series. We'll return next week with chapter three titled Coach Pop. My name is Kyle Ledbetter. Thank you for supporting our dreams. We'll talk to you again next week. And in the meantime, take it easy. Chapter three, Coach Pop. 
Greg Popovich was born on January 28, 1949, in a small town called East Chicago, Illinois. Popovich's parents, Raymond and Catherine, lived in the former country of Yugoslavia, Raymond from the Kingdom of Serbia and Catherine from Croatia, before immigrating to the United States. At age 11, Popovich and his mother moved to another small town called Merrillville, Indiana, following his parents' divorce. In 1970, the first year the U.S. Census recorded data for Merrillville, the population of the town was approximately 16,000 people in total. Against the backdrop of a small town in Indiana, Greg Popovich began his journey to becoming the winningest head coach in NBA history. Merrillville is approximately 40 miles outside the city of Chicago, the home of Mike Krzyzewski, the winningest coach in the history of college basketball. Born two years and 40 miles apart from Popovich, Krzyzewski was born to Polish immigrants who immigrated after invasions by the German and Italian militaries in 1941. After high school, Popovich enrolled at the Air Force Academy, while Krzyzewski enrolled at the Armed Forces Academy. Coach K played basketball at Army under famous basketball coach Bobby Knight, then later coached as an assistant with Knight at Indiana University. After a 31-1 season in 1975, Coach Krzyzewski was hired as Army head coach at just 28 years old. In 1980, Coach K was hired as the head coach at Duke University, where he would go on to win five national championships, advance to 13 Final Fours, and set a college basketball record with 1,202 wins during 42 years as Duke coach. Discussing Krzyzewski is important for understanding the story of Popovich, because both of these men's stories follow these quintessential 20th century American success stories. Popovich and Krzyzewski were born to immigrants from Eastern Europe, at the time the only region in the world in which migrants were being accepted by the United States government. As first-generation Americans, Popovich and Krzyzewski were afforded new opportunities within the backdrop of massive post-war economic expansion. Under the presidencies of Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and Dwight D. Eisenhower, the United States government invested billions of dollars into creating economic programs for low-income Americans. The United States government created social programs to make food, housing, jobs, education, and health care affordable, creating a thriving, educated middle class that would stimulate the economy following both the Great Depression and World War II. In addition to creating social programs to lift people out of poverty, the United States also dramatically increased their spending on the military and infrastructure. In, the, in 1944, the GI Bill was signed into law providing free education to people who served. In 1954, the United States government established the Air Forces Academy, a third military academy in addition to the Navy and Army. In the 1950s, spending on military defense had grown to be so expansive that, in his 1961 farewell address, President Eisenhower warned about the dangers of the growing economy of war in the United States. Social programs of the 1950s were incredibly effective in helping lift Americans out of poverty, as well as leading to U.S. economic expansion. U.S. GDP increased by 745 percent from 1945 to 1975, 
and the middle class was larger relative to the percentage of wealth than at any time period in U.S. history. However, these social programs also failed because of the explicit and implicit exclusion of racial minorities, women, and immigrants from receiving benefits, widening the United States inequity gap. It is with this historical context that both Greg Popovich and Mike Krzyzewski begin their journeys towards becoming basketball's greatest coaches. Both Popovich and Krzyzewski used sport and the military to achieve economic and social mobility and were afforded the privilege to do so as first-generation American white men, growing up in the backdrop of growing economic opportunity in 1940s and 1950s America. Greg Popovich played for the Air Force basketball team from 1966 until 1970, being named the team's captain during his senior season. Popovich's head coach was a man named Bob Spear, and the dean of his school at the time was a man named Robert McDermott. McDermott had a daughter named Betsy, and Betsy's best friend from age eight onward was named Aaron Conboy. Aaron's father, Jim Conboy, was the head athletic trainer at Air Force from the school's first season in 1955 until his death in 1998. Betsy McDermott introduced Aaron Conboy and Greg Popovich to each other while Greg was attending Air Force and Aaron at nearby Colorado State in Fort Collins. Popovich ended up graduating in 1970 with a degree in Soviet studies, and in exchange for his free education, he had five years of military service in the Air Force after his graduation. Popovich began touring with the Air Force in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and served as captain on the 1972 Armed Forces team. In 2012, Popovich recalled his time playing for the Armed Forces team. Quote, I got to travel a little bit and see a bit of the world. The year we won it was 1972. We won the Armed Forces Tournament that year, and the All-Armed Forces team went to the AAU Championships in Kentucky and won that. So I was able to go to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union when it was a little bit different. <laughs> I still remember, wherever I walked, every time I turned around, there was a guy following me no matter where I went. To my hotel room, to the dining hall, trying to walk the streets. It was pretty interesting. End quote. After spending three years touring Eastern Europe, Popovich was requested back to the Air Force Academy by head coach Hank Egan. Egan had been an assistant basketball coach for Popovich's final three seasons at Air Force and was promoted to succeed Speer in 1971. Egan arranged for Popovich to serve his final two years as active duty military in Colorado Springs and work part-time as an assistant basketball coach. The arrangement worked out so that Popovich could begin a coaching career, finish his service, and be back together with his longtime partner, Aaron Conboy. Aaron and Greg Popovich married in 1976, after Greg completed his active duty service in the Air Force. In 1977, the couple welcomed their first child, a son named Mickey Popovich. In 1979, they welcomed their second child, 
Jill Popovich. In the 1970s, Pomona College in East Los Angeles was one of the most selective schools in the United States for higher education. As a Division III basketball school, Pomona fielded athletic teams described as quote-unquote glorified intramural players playing college basketball on the side of study sessions and biology homework. In 1979, Pomona College Dean Bob Volkel was looking to hire a new head coach for their newly formed Pomona Pitzer basketball team. The school had recently combined its athletic department with a nearby liberal arts college to save resources. He reached out to an Air Force assistant coach named Reggie Minton, who ended up declining the job. According to the San Antonio Express News, Minton recommended another Air Force coach to Volkel. Having spent the last six years in Colorado, Greg, Aaron, and their newborn family moved out to Claremont, California, about an hour east of Los Angeles, where Greg would become the head coach of the Pomona Pitzer Sagehens. The population of Claremont at the time was 31,000 people, and the two colleges of Pomona and Pitzer combined equaled the size of a large high school. Jordan Ritter Kahn of Grantland detailed Popovich's first head coaching job in 2015. Quote, The Sage Hens had no size, no quickness, no shooting, no toughness, no basketball talent of any kind. They had future lawyers and academics who liked to be coached by Socratic method. All season, they had struggled to field enough players for a proper five-on-five scrimmage. Some players had quit. Many others missed practice for chemistry labs, study sessions, or student government meetings. On these days, they would practice four-on-four. Popovich was not a savant slumming it up at a small school. He was an improving coach and a horrible dresser already with a taste for fine wine, but without the salary to buy much of it. On the court, he tried some weird shit. In the huddle, he fell into imitations of Bobby Knight, but he cared deeply about the people around him and even the most mundane tasks of his job. And while he fumbled, fumed, and experimented his way through nearly a decade on basketball's fringe, he remained in search of the relationships and experiences that would help him find his identity as a coach. End quote. Popovich's first team at Pomona Pitzer went 2-22, and finishing dead last in the Southern California Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. Popovich didn't have the players nor an identity as a coach. Popovich's first grand idea was to start recruiting players to play for his team something Pomona had never done before. As Ritter Khan's 2015 Grantland story describes, before Popovich, quote, coaches put up flyers and wannabes around uh, and wannabes arrived at the gym for a couple days of drills. The least awful among them earned the rights to call themselves college basketball players, end quote. Popovich's recruiting helped net the Sagehens a stable basketball team. And once the players committed, Coach Pop could start building his program into a competitive team. Ritter Khan's Grantland story details the recruiting during Popovich's first year at Pomona Pitzer. Quote, 
Popovich wrote and sent letters to almost every high school in the western third of the United States. He explained who he was and what he wanted. Kids who first could play basketball and second had a prayer of getting into one of his two schools. It was the most inefficient process imaginable, says Charles Katsafishis, a former Popovich assistant and the current head coach at Pomona Pitzer. After they paper-bombed the region with solicitations, they put together a list of several hundred names, kids who, who some strange high school coach in some strange town thought might be smart enough to attend Pomona or Pitzer and good enough to help Popovich's team. The man now famous for his disdain of superfluous interaction, the coach who has turned the humiliation of lazy reporters into his own sport, loved, loved recruiting those who knew him say. His letters were gorgeous, written in black ink and cursive. He addressed players' basketball goals and digressed into their intellectual interests, confident that only Pomona Pitzer could reward both. He called at night, often on Sundays, and he asked about their classes and families. After exhausting those topics, he tried to convince them to join his team. This being Division Three, he could offer no scholarships. But he sold the campus, the faculty, the weather, and a chance to play. End quote. Here's the win-loss record of Popovich's first six seasons at Pomona Pitzer. 1980, 2-22. 1981, 10-15. 1982, 9-17. 1983, 12-11. 1984, 9-17. Under Popovich, Pomona and Pitzer went from a glorified intramural team to a semi-competitive program. He spent six years at the Air Force acquiring skills as an assistant, another six learning skills for being a leader and working the meticulous attention to detail that came with a leader's responsibility. As Popovich would describe in 2012, this job brought him more joy in coaching, more joy in coaching more than anything else. Quote, I was fat, dumb, and happy as a Division III coach, and I would have done that the rest of my life. Becoming a pro coach was something that I never thought of. End quote. The 1986 season, his seventh at Pomona Pitzer and 13th as a coach, would be the year that began to change the course of Popovich's coaching career. Pomona Pitzer went 16-12, including an 8-2 record in the SCIAC, securing Pomona their first-ever conference championship and first appearance in the 32-team NCAA Division III playoffs. The team lost in the first round to the eventual third-place Nebraska Wesleyan team, yet it was still the greatest season in school history. After the 1986 season, Coach Pop took a one-year sabbatical at Pomona Pitzer to work as a volunteer assistant coach under Kansas basketball coach Larry Brown. Up to this point, Brown had been the coach of the Denver Nuggets in the 1970s, winning ABA Coach of the Year in 1973, 75, and 1976. He moved to college as the head coach at UCLA, leading them to second place in the 1980 NCAA Final Four, 
and worked back in the NBA with the New Jersey Nets. Here's how Popovich described his year working under Larry Brown to the Los Angeles Times in 1988. Quote, We got to know each other and I learned a lot about basketball. The thing I learned most was the way they approached the game at the different levels. It's the same game at any level. It's just the way they approach it that's different. End quote. Popovich returned to Pomona Pitzer in 1988, going 7-19 and 4-6 in conference play. After winning the 1988 National Championship, Larry Brown left Kansas in 1988 to become the head coach of the San Antonio Spurs. That same year, the NCAA placed a one-year tournament ban and three years probation on the Kansas program based on recruiting violations. Popovich wanted to ask Larry Brown if he could follow him to San Antonio as an assistant coach. But as a Division III head coach, he was afraid because, quote, he thought Larry Brown would laugh in his face, end quote. Brown had grown to like Popovich and his coaching style. So when Popovich asked him for a job, Brown offered one to him. Popovich was making the leap from Division III head coach to an assistant in the NBA. During the first years of the Spurs dynasty, Larry Brown's coaching staff consisted of Popovich, future Spurs general manager R.C. Buford, and future NBA head coach Alvin Gentry. After four years, Larry Brown's infamous temper and aggressive coaching style rubbed then-Spurs governor Red McCombs the wrong way, and Brown was fired in the middle of the 1992 season. Popovich was retained as an assistant coach when general manager Bob Bass took over the team, and the Spurs fell into a brief period of mismanagement around David Robinson, as we discussed in Chapter 1. Popovich ended up leaving San Antonio to become an assistant with Hall of Fame coach Don Nelson in Golden State following the 1992 season. In 1993, the San Antonio Spurs played their first season inside the newly constructed Alamo Dome, a football stadium-sized arena in downtown. In 1994, with the team firmly established in the San Antonio market, the Spurs would be sold by McCombs to a group of local business people in the San Antonio area for the purchase price of $85 million. The lead investor of this group would be a man named Robert McDermott. The same Robert McDermott who had been the dean of Greg Popovich's school at the Air Force in the 1960s. The same Robert McDermott whose daughter's lifelong best friend was Aaron Popovich. One heck of a coincidence, huh? McDermott was appointed by President Eisenhower as the first permanent professor at the Air Force Academy, then became the first permanent dean of the faculty in 1959. Over two decades, McDermott would become known as the father of modern military education, before leaving the military sector to become the CEO of USAA Insurance. When McDermott took the position in 1968, USAA served primarily as a military insurer and was the 16th largest auto insurer and 15th largest homeowners insurer. In McDermott's 25 years as CEO, 
USAA grew into the fifth largest auto insurer and fourth largest homeowners insurer. And the company's headquarters? They were based in San Antonio, Texas. McDermott earned enough money as CEO of USAA to be the lead investor for San Antonio's local professional basketball team, back when it cost a mere $85 million to buy a basketball team, compared to the multi-billion dollar purchase prices of NBA teams today. As we discussed in Chapter 1, the Spurs had gone through five different coaches in the three years prior to McDermott's purchase of the team, and had failed to advance beyond the second round of the playoffs. McDermott turned to his family friend, at the time still working with Nelson and the Warriors, as the San Antonio Spurs general manager, despite the fact Popovich had never worked in an NBA front office before. Popovich had experience with recruiting, and the lessons he learned transforming Pomona Pitzer would be important to carry with him into a job he was underqualified for. As we discussed in Chapter 1 and 2, Popovich's hire of Bob Hill and acquisitions of Avery Johnson, Chuck Person, and Doc Rivers helped provide a stable foundation the Spurs hadn't seen in years. David Robinson won the 1995 NBA MVP, and the Spurs came within two games of the 1995 NBA Finals. They then won 59 games in 1996, Robinson got hurt, Bob Hill was fired, Popovich named himself the team's head coach, and they inexplicably won the lottery to select Tim Duncan. Then they acquired Will Perdue, Mario Eli, and Steve Kerr, turned the offense over to Duncan, and won the 1999 NBA Finals. During the first three years of Popovich's coaching, he was a favorite among players and a pariah among fans. Bob Hill won 121 games over his first two seasons as Spurs coach, and his firing felt very premature. What what angered fans and pundits alike was that Popovich appointed himself head coach, making the unspoken claim, I can do better than this guy, which, even if he could, it wasn't going to be popular. And yet, doing the unpopular right thing was one of the trademarks of the culture that Popovich, Buford, and the Spurs were setting up during the late 1990s. They originally ran only four or five plays on offense, and once those were mastered, they practiced a sixth. Popovich was learning on the fly how best to operate as an NBA coach. As Pop describes in 2016, Having Tim Duncan was the reason he was, allowed as, he was allowed as much time to experiment and adapt as a coach. Quote, I would not be standing here if it were not for Tim Duncan. I'd be in the Bud League, the Budweiser League, someplace in America, fat and still trying to play basketball or coach basketball. End quote. As the 20th century gave way to the 21st century, the world of coaching was reaching a turning point. In a decades-long transformation of coaching, leadership, and motivation. For most of the 20th century, the predominant style of coaching sports was based on the lessons of military training. Militaristic principles actually built the foundation for organized sports, dating back to the 1880s where college football was invented as a way to teach the lessons of war to Ivy League men during a time without a major war. Coaching and teaching were jobs that former sergeants and military officials would take after retiring from service. 
Organized sports became a way to instill the principles and lessons of the military in peacetime, which would better serve the military once, the, once a war began. The famed Bobby Knight, who led Indiana to the 1976 NCAA National Championship, was famously a dictatorial figure with his players. He was known for yelling at players and referees, cursing into live microphones, and one time famously throwing a chair across the floor. Knight was notoriously harsh on his players, as if he were a general in the army, and sports were treated with the same life-or-death energy as a war. He coached at Army for 10 years before he moved to Indiana University. One of his lead assistants was Mike Krzyzewski, who would coach Army himself from 1975 until 1980. As Ritter Khan's 2019 Grantland story details, Popovich defaulted towards the militaristic models of coaching when he was struggling to find his identity as a coach. Quote, Greg Popovich was at turns orny and sweet, prone to fits of shouting and still searching for his own voice. Quote, he wanted to be Bobby Knight, says former player Dan Dargan. Back then, everybody wanted to be Bobby Knight. End quote. In 1973, the United States abolished the draft system, making all enrollment in the military on a voluntary basis. In 1975, the Vietnam War ended, and the United States would not engage in a major ground war until the invasion of Iraq in the Gulf War of 1990. As anti-war sentiments came to define the cultural landscape of those 15 years, coaching began to evolve from a militaristic style to an academic style of coaching. The best coaches were people who had almost all gone to higher education, and they had very occasionally served in war. By the time the 1990s rolled around, many of the players being coach had lived in peacetime for nearly their entire lives, born during the anti-war and civil rights movements of the late 1960s and 1970s. The models of success for coaching looked less like former military generals and more like Pat Riley and Phil Jackson, both former NBA players who had gone to college, played on champion basketball teams, then immediately went into coaching after their playing careers. Between 1981 and 2002, teams coached by Riley and Jackson won 13 of the 21 NBA championships. In 1994 and 1995, the Houston Rockets won two championships coached by Rudy Tomjanovich, who attended the University of Michigan in the 1960s and played 11 years in the NBA before moving into coaching. Coaching in the 21st century would come to look like Steve Kerr, who was playing with Popovich from 1998 to 2003 on the Spurs and regards Popovich as his coaching mentor. Kerr's father, Malcolm, was the president of the American University of Beirut, Lebanon. He was assassinated in Beirut when Kerr was 18 years old, one year away from playing basketball at the University of Arizona. Kerr played 15 years in the NBA, worked as general manager of the Phoenix Suns, and as a broadcaster for Turner Sports. 
Kerr was hired in 2014 as head coach of the Golden State Warriors and won six Western Conference titles and four NBA championships in his first eight seasons. The academic style of coaching was replacing the militaristic style of coaching. Military principles were becoming less effective forms of motivation because what was being taught did not reflect the current state of an ever-changing world. Basketball was not the same as war, and coaches who were taught to view the game as war would have to adapt their principles accordingly. Those who didn't adjust would succumb to the same fate that befell Popovich's mentors. Larry Brown would be one of the coaches most synonymous with the militaristic style of coaching in the NBA. While Brown had Hall of Fame success as a coach, advancing to the ABA, NBA, and college championship games with five different teams, Brown was someone who got fired from jobs quickly because of player mutinies, fallouts with front offices, or a combination of factors. Larry Brown coached 11 different teams in 37 years, never working in the same place for longer than five seasons, frequently leaving with hard feelings on both sides. Bobby Knight was the winningest coach of the 1970s and 1980s in college basketball. After Indiana's 1987 championship, Knight only made the Sweet 16 round three times, the Elite Eight once, and never made a Final Four again. In 2000, Bobby Knight was fired at Indiana University after a video was released of Knight choking former player Neil Reed during an Indiana practice. His firing became a national reckoning of coaching, since Knight had been the coach who symbolized the success of the early to mid-20th century militaristic coaching model. This is where Popovich was tasked with adapting the systems he grew up in to build something sustainable in San Antonio. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.